Amen. We juxtapose those songs for a purpose. As I've told you in the past, Christmas is not intended to be cute because we're talking about the eternal, holy, amazing God coming to join one of us, and that's not cute. I'd like to read to you from the Word of God from Romans chapter 2 as we continue our study of the book of Romans. Please listen. These are not my words. These are the words of that holy and great I Am. It says this, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we have already proclaimed the, the wonder and the glory, you sending your holy and great Son to join us in the human race, to take the punishment that should have been ours, to become flesh and be treated as flesh, that we might be treated like the sons and daughters of God. Father, this morning I pray that your Spirit would be present among us and that we would understand what must take place if we are going to be with you forever in heaven and see you as you really are. Open our eyes to the truth. Remove the blinders. Give us soft hearts to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was studying this week, I began to think, you know, if, if someone came in from off the street, someone who'd never been in church before, someone who never read the Bible before, didn't understand the storyline of the Bible, and they heard me read this passage, they would scratch their head and say, what in the world is he talking about? What is all this business about circumcision, circumcision of the heart, and on and on and on? And then I thought, you know, if, 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 
if there were young believers here, new believers, pe- people who had only been Christians for a short time, they might have the same reaction. And, and I thought, well, there might be people who have been Christians for a long, long time and think, what in the world is that talking about? What's this business about circumcision and being a Jew and not being a Jew and on and on and on? So my prayer has simply been this this week. Lord, teach us all whatever uh, perspective we're coming from, whether we been Christians for a long time or aren't Christians today, teach us what all this business is. So hopefully the Spirit of God will show up and you will know this passage better when I finish. We have to have some background here to get this. 3,500 years ago, in time and space and human history, God created a special relationship with the people that we call the Jews. 3,500 years ago. That's 1,500 years ago before the time that what I just read to you was written. It's been 2,000 years since Christ, right? This is 2012, almost 2013 A.D. A.D. means? Anno Domini, that's not what it means. That's the Latin, what does it mean? The year of our Lord who? Jesus. The entire Western world, in a couple of weeks or so, is going to celebrate the year of our Lord, 2013. I want to challenge you, Christians tell the world what they're celebrating. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, 2013 years since him. But 1,500 years before that, before Jesus had come, before the word had become flesh, God entered into a special relationship with the Jews. He called them out, treated them differently than he treated anybody else. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I'm going to have this special relationship, this special arrangement with you where I'm going to give you everything your heart could possibly desire. I'm going to give you wealth. You're going to have an entire nation of King Midas's. Everything you touch will turn to gold. Literally, you'll be rich. And I'm going to give you health where you will have no diseases and no problems physically. And I'm going to give you military uh, prowess over your enemies. Nobody will be able to defeat you. And you will have heaven on earth. And they said, sign me up. He said, Here's, here are the terms of this contract. I'm going to give you my law, my Ten Commandments. And you've got to keep them. So you can't have other gods, you just, just mean, you can't make idols and worship them, and, and you can't take my name and a vow uh, in vain, and you've got to keep the Sabbath, you've got to honor your parents, and don't steal, and don't lie, and, and don't covet things that aren't yours, and don't commit murder, and all that stuff. And if you keep all of those laws perfectly, you'll be a special possession of mine, a special nation to me. They said, great, sign us up. He said, but there's another side to this. If you don't keep my laws, If you disobey, if you break this contract, there will be consequences. I will judge you. I will punish you for disobeying me. And instead of having wealth, you'll have poverty. Instead of having health, you'll be poor. Instead of conquering your enemies, they will conquer you. And it will be severe for you if you break my covenant. And they said, great, sign us up, we're in. 1,500 years before Christ. And he gave them a special sign, a special uh, mark on their body that set them apart. It was circumcision. Now, people today, most little boys are circumcised in our nation today, but it's not for religious or or, uh, uh, traditional reasons. It's more for hygiene and such. But this was a special mark, and that's why Jews to this day, their boys are circumcised on the eighth day, because God said, this is what I want you to do. Circumcise all the boys to set you apart as uniquely mine. So he's given them the law, what we call the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He gave them those commands, gave them the law, gave them the special mark, and said, now keep my commandments, and I will bless you. Well, over the upcoming centuries, 
What Israel did is they forgot the terms of the contract. And they began to convince themselves but by simply, that by simply having the mark, having circumcision, and having the Word of God, they were good. God likes us. God is pleased with us. God is going to bless us because we've got the sign of circumcision. We have the law. We're good. God likes us. Everything's happy. He should bless us. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, by the time we get to when what I read to you was written, they were absolutely convinced that they couldn't do anything to get outside of God's blessing. Yeah, they'd had some hiccups along the way, and they disobeyed, and God had brought some judgment, but he had promised to bring and deliver. He had promised to bring a Messiah, and someday God is going to receive them back, and everything's going to be great, and they're, they're good because they got the sign and they got the law. And Paul, the apostle who wrote what I read to you, he's got some things to say to the Jews who think they don't have to keep the law, they don't have to obey God, they just have the sign, and they have the law, and they're good. It's kind of like this, not perfectly like this, but kind of like this. Imagine someone who is recruited to the army, and he puts on the uniform for the first time. Can you imagine? Some of you can, because you've had first-hand experience with this kind of thing. Puts on the uniform and thinks, I'm a soldier now. I get to wear the uniform. I get to put patches on and things. I get to serve my country in uniform. Well, it's not just putting on the uniform that makes him a soldier. There are expectations of him. He's intended to fight with bravery and courage for his nation. He's, he's making a, a promise not to leave any of his fellow soldiers lying on the ground, but to, but to bring them back to camp and to safety. He is committed to serve this nation with his last breath. He is committed to, to act in a way that's becoming of a soldier of the United States Army. And imagine somebody like that that eventually gets to the place where he doesn't really care about the duty. He doesn't really care about what he's committed to. He's just proud of having the uniform. That's, that's kind of how the Jews had become. They have the uniform. They have the circumcision. They have the written requirements. They're good. And Paul has something to say to them. And so he says, if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law, that is you rest on it just having it, and you boast in God, saying, I'm good with God. We're friends. He's, he's got a special relationship with me. And you know his will. You know it because you've got it and you can read it. And you approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. You know what God is pleased with. You know those core things that God wants from people because you've got it in the law. You've got it in the book, in the Bible. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. So, so some of you know this. Paul was speaking from firsthand experience here. He calls himself, in another letter, he calls himself a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a high-ranking official in Judaism. He knew the mindset. He knew the attitude that the Jews brought to the world. And he knew, he's speaking from experience, he used to be one of them just like this, convinced that he was a, a guide to the blind, going around saying, look, can you not see how to please God? Are you incapable of really grasping what God wants? Let me show you. I will be your guide because I have the Bible. I have the law. A light to the, those in darkness. Are you stumbling around, groping, trying to figure out what's right in the world and how to please God? Let me shine the light of the glory of God before you because I have it right here in the, in the book. I can read it to you. 
a corrector of the foolish. If you think that you don't know how to discern God's will, you don't know how to figure out what's pleasing to Him, I can help you. I can correct you because I have the law. I'm a Jew. I have circumcision. If you're immature, you need to grow up and please God, I can teach you because I have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Paul says, this is the mindset of the Jews. He says, then you who teach another, do you teach yourself? Have you learned the lessons that you're teaching to others? Think about a piano instructor. A piano instructor who has a stack of books on music theory. And, and she understands all those little you know, squiggly lines that are written on the page here. She gets all this. Sorry, Aaron, you're going to have to find your place later when, when I get done. I'll get the hollered at if I get done. She can show you all these notes on the page. Oh, thank you. She doesn't need that. And, and she can say, and, and she goes around listening to people, you know, she's here listening to Barb play this wonderful piece. She said, ah, she didn't get it right. Look, there's a note right there that she missed. I know because that little squiggly line, the little filled in place, that's an eighth note or that's a quarter note. And, and that's not what you played. Or there's a little dot by it. That means you're supposed to add half the rhythm, half the beat, and you didn't play that right. And she goes around telling all these musicians, you're not doing it right. I can guide you. I can lead you. I can tell you and show you what it's supposed to be like. And then you ask, great, could you sit down at the piano and play? And she says, no. I know how to play. She's taught all these other people. She's pointed out all their errors and their mistakes, but she herself has never learned to play the piano. That's what Paul is saying is, you are teaching all these other people how to please God. Do you yourself learn the lesson? Do you please God? Can you please him? Or imagine an IRS agent. I know, you don't want to imagine an IRS agent. But imagine an IRS agent who spends their whole life calling people to obey the rules of the land, to pay their taxes, and they've got, you know, stacks and stacks and buildings full of books that, of all the code, and they've got it all memorized, and they know exactly where you've messed up. And you say, well, let me, let me see your accounting. Have you paid your taxes? No, I don't, I don't pay taxes. I don't follow all that. Paul is saying to these Jews who have the law, who have circumcision, who are teaching others, have you taught yourself? And then he gives them a bunch of questions. You who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That one's a little harder. We're not exactly sure what, what was going on, what kind of temple robbing was going on there, and there's some different uh, speculations. It really doesn't matter. We can be sure the audience knew what it was and that they were uh, doing what, differently than they were teaching. And then he says, verse 23, you who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? That's a question here, but it's not really a question. It's kind of like when my mother would say, do I need to get out of this chair? Do you want me to get out of this chair and come over and make you behave? It's not really a question, right? And if you've been in that situation, you know you've got about five seconds to untie your brother from the, from the ceiling fan before she gets up. <laughs> He's saying, you who abhor idols, I mean, I'm sorry, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, you do dishonor God. What he's saying is what Jesus said, only Jesus said it more concisely, you hypocrites. 
You're saying one thing but doing another. You're teaching others, but you don't follow the law yourself. You're going around and you're rebuking others and you're condemning others, but you yourselves have not done what you're calling others to do and you're a hypocrite. Remember, that was Jesus' favorite words for the leaders of the Jews. Favorite word was, you hypocrites, brood of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. Those are strong words. No wonder they killed him. And then he quotes, then Paul quotes from the Old Testament saying what was true of them then is true of you now. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. In other words, when the Jew did not please God and did not obey God, all the Gentiles had a reason to say, I don't want anything to do with them. They're saying don't steal, but they're the biggest thieves I know. They're saying don't commit adultery, but everybody's cheating on their wife. I don't want anything to do with them. And they're blaspheming God. I don't want them. I don't want their God. Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to keep looking. Now, this just screams to us as modern-day Christians to at least ask the question. We're God's people now. Are we giving the world cause to blaspheme God? Do our lives show an inherent contradiction? Do we tell the world, this is Christmas, we have the message of joy, joy to the world, and then go live lives of depression, lives of gloom, lives of profound sadness, so that people look at us and say, if that's, if that's what God has to offer, I don't want anything to do with it. Because they keep telling me about joy, but I don't see joy in their lives. Or we proclaim peace on earth and goodwill toward men, and then we're constantly looking for a fight. So that the people, the, the unbelievers say, I, I don't want anything to do with that God and that religion if that's what it's all about. Or we proclaim hope. We have the message of hope. We have the truth of God which brings hope, and yet we live lives of hopelessness. We watch the stock market crash. We watch the political games and the elections, and we just say, oh, the, the whole world is, is just going nowhere. It's all going to collapse, and we're going to collapse beneath the weight. There's no hope here. And the world says, why would I become a Christian again? Why would I want to be like you? Because there's nothing attractive about that. Or we proclaim the heart of the gospel. Here is how you can be forgiven of your sins. Here's how you can be reconciled with God. Here's how you can come and stand before the great I am. And he will not be angry at you, but he will forgive you and accept you as a son or daughter. And then we live our lives actually living out as though God hates us and we hate him and we're afraid and terrified of him. Do our lives give the world the opportunity to say, I don't know who God is, but that's not the one I'm after. That's what the Jews were doing. And Paul is calling them on the carpet here and saying, you think that you're a guide to the blind, you think you have something to say, but your lives, your, your decisions, your words, you're just hypocrites. Now, if you're a Jew hearing this, that's pretty painful, but he's really going to get them where it hurts now. He says, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, that is if you break the law, if you don't obey God, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. 
Now, I probably don't have to explain it to you. That's metaphorically speaking. But catch what he's saying. The uniform the soldier is wearing, it's meaningful so long as he lives his life as a good soldier. But if he stops being a good soldier, if he's a coward, or if, if he just tells all the other soldiers what they should be doing, but he himself doesn't actually do anything, he doesn't even know how to clean his gun, and his bed is a mess, and his shoes aren't shiny, but he knows how else his shoes should be, and he leaves his, his brothers out on the field, if he has abandoned everything that it means to be a soldier, then his uniform means nothing. In fact, it can become a sign of hypocrisy as people see what he's really like. That's what Paul here is saying about the Jews. This special mark of circumcision that you have, it's great as long as you keep the commandments. You have the mark in your skin that says, I am special to God, I am unique to God, and that's wonderful as long as you obey the law. But if you stop obeying the law, you've lost the mark. The mark is meaningless. Because the mark signified something. If that reality is not there, the mark means nothing. Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Your, your uniform is not a uniform anymore. And then he says, so if the uncircumcised man, that's the, that's the non-Jew, that's the Gentile, if he keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he was physically uncircumcised. If he keeps the law, will he not judge you, though having the law, the letter of the law, and circumcision, though you are a transgressor? In other words, the guy who isn't enlisted, who's not in the army, who picks up his gun and he defends America. And he fights for freedom. And he is loyal to the cause. And he does everything a soldier should do. Would we not look at him and say, that's a soldier? And look at the man with the uniform saying, that's the hypocrite. Yes, we would. Because the uniform itself is meaningless. It's the life lived in the uniform that matters. The mark of circumcision for the Jew was meaningless. It's a life lived that matters. And so if, if someone is more like a Jew than the Jew, God's going to look at the non-Jew as the real Jew. And he's going to look at the Jew like a hypocrite. Not like a hypocrite, as a hypocrite, because he is a hypocrite. Then he makes a very, very important statement. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Christians in 21st century America need to know that verse. Look at it again. He is not a Jew based on things outside of himself. Beloved, what that means is, in God's sight, now that the new covenant has come, now that the church has been established, in God's sight, a person who is circumcised, a person who is born in the family tree of Jewishness, he's not a Jew in God's sight. Israel is no longer God's special people. The church is God's special people. If you're looking at America's relationship with the nation of Israel, 
Look at it through political eyes, not through religious eyes. Sometimes we want to quote the Old Testament that says, those who bless Israel, God will bless, and those who curse Israel, God will curse. That is no longer true. God's not going to condemn America if we don't support Israel. We need to treat Israel just like we treat Europe and Asia, Russia, Japan, everybody. They're a nation, and they need the gospel like every other nation. Because he's not a Jew just because of what happens on the outside. And circumcision is not that which happens on the outside, but on the inside. The church, he's developed a special relationship with the church, with Christians. We are his chosen people now. Now let me apply this in another way. If you're here today, and maybe this is your first time to our church, and you grew up in some church, and you were told... That by being baptized as a baby, you're good with God? You're not. Or maybe you were baptized as a kid or an adult, and just through that act alone, everything's good now. Or maybe you were told if, if you pray this prayer, you're good with God now. See, those are all external things. And coming to church, coming to this church or any other church Sunday after Sunday, that doesn't automatically make you good with God. Because it's not what happens on the outside. It's not the motions we go through. It's not our, our ordinances or our sacraments or our rit rituals and, and religious rites that make us good with God. Those are all external things. Some of them are very good. Please come back to church next week. God wants you to come to church. That's a good thing. But just coming here today does not make everything okay with God. Because it's not about what happens on the outside or what happens in the flesh Verse 29 says, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. See, it's not the uniform. It's the attitude and the will and the action and the life. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. See, the kind of circumcision that matters to God, you cannot go down to Memorial Hospital and get. If you take your son your newborn son, and say, I want you to circumcise his heart. They're going to say, we have a ward for people like you. Come with me. The doctor can't do this. And, and when it's talking about a circumcision of the heart here, it's not talking about that internal organ that if we could just break apart the cavity, the, the chest cavity, and get in there, the thing that pumps blood, that's not what he's talking about. Talk about the inner being, the inner soul, the inner man, our attitudes and our loves and our passions and our concerns. Like when we talk about someone who goes, has gusto, and he does things with all with heart. It's that inside, not, not the physical, but the spiritual part. That's where the circumcision takes place to make someone a real Jew in God's sight. Well, if you can't take someone to the doctor to get this, this procedure, where do you take them? Paul says, it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that can perform the surgery that will put someone into a special relationship with him. He speaks to the heart. He transforms the heart. He gives us a heart transplant, but it has nothing to do with our organs, but with our inner person, our inner being. And the Spirit of God transforms that heart, changes that heart, puts his mark on that heart 
not the letter of the law, not the Old Covenant, not the Old Testament Scriptures, but the Spirit of God. And now God praises us, not men. When we put on this uniform, we don't care what men think of us. We're not trying to impress people. We're not living our lives so that people will say, wow, that's a good guy. Now we live our guys so that God will say, I'm pleased with you. You are doing well. You are serving me faithfully. You're living your lives worthy of my name. I'm glad you're wearing the uniform because you're doing it justice. That can only happen as God himself works on the inside. So what Paul's really saying through this whole section is, just because the Jews had the Bible does not make them special to God. Just because they had the external rituals, that did not make them special to God. Just because someone wears the uniform, that doesn't make them special. Are we pleasing to Him? Are we serving Him? Now, those of you who have been following along know that this section fits into a larger context. There, there's i got to tell you, I fought myself all week because the, the application screams out, are we hypocrites? And I kind of went there already. And we want to just camp here and examine our lives, examine our hearts and figure out, are we hypocrites? Are we Christians just like the Jews he's talking to? And that's a good thing to wrestle with, but that's not the primary point. This fits into a larger argument. Some of you may be asking, is he saying that a Gentile could really keep the law? Are there Gentiles out there that are better than the Jews that are actually keeping all of God's commandments? And the answer, of course, that he's already said and that he will say emphatically later is no. He's just making a point. He's using an illustration. I'm not really saying that you should take up arms and go out and become a soldier. You'll get in trouble for that, and don't blame me if you do. I'm just using an illustration and Paul, when he's describing this Gentile keeping the law better than the Jew, he's not saying any Gentile actually did keep the law. He's just using an illustration to make his point. Where he's heading in all of this is as God looks out across the world, Jews, Gentiles, Americans, Mexicans, Chinese, Russians, it doesn't matter. As he looks across the world, all he sees are people who have failed to obey his laws. None of us have. I haven't. You haven't. Teenagers, you haven't. We're not perfect. And that should concern us. Because someday we're going to stand before the one who is perfect, and he's going to evaluate our lives. He's going to evaluate our attitudes, our inner being, and our outward works. And he's going to say, here's what I required of you. How did you do? And if we fail at any point, then because he's a just God, he will punish us. That's where all this is going. The Jews are no better than the Gentiles. Everybody stands under the condemnation of God. Now, if you were here today, that would not be a message that would be very attractive to you. If you were here today as an unbeliever, you'd think, well, why do I care about that? Because that's not the end of the story. It's true, and it's crucial to get this right. All of us are going to stand before God and give an account for our lives, and if we did not please Him perfectly, we will be condemned. But there's another part of the story. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus, God's Son, coming to planet Earth, 
Yes, he was born as a cute little baby, and I'm sure there were cute things about it. But the story gets very solemn because he goes up to a man. He lives about 33 years, and he does obey God perfectly. Without exception, not a single sin, not the slightest little difference from what God requires. Never told a lie, never had an evil thought, never lost his temper, never said something he shouldn't have and something he regrets, never a lustful thought. He never abandoned anybody at their time of need. He never forgot to do something good that he should have done. He never disappointed people. They may have been disappointed because they didn't like what he did. Not a single time did he fail to do everything God wants him to do. And then he went to the cross. And on that cross, God treated him as though he were a sinner like you and me. He wasn't a sinner like you and me. But God treated him as though he were. And he poured out his judgment and his punishment on his innocent son. And for the last 2,000 years, the message has been proclaimed. The gospel has been proclaimed. The good news that if you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, God will take your sin, put it to Jesus' account where it was punished 2,000 years ago. And he will take God's or Jesus' righteous behavior, his good works, and transfer them to your account so that now when you stand before God at judgment, he will not condemn you and punish you. He will say, well done, you pleased me, because he's looking at the works of Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. What Paul, where he's heading with this whole section of chapter 118 through 320 is this. All of us as human beings are desperate for two things. We need two things. Number one, we need to be forgiven of our sins. We've all sinned. We've all disobeyed. And somehow we need forgiveness. We need God to look at our sin and say, I won't hold that against you. That's the cross. That's what I just described. That's the good news of Jesus becoming a child and going to the cross. The second thing we need is that heart transplant. Because our natural inclinations are to do bad things. And we all know this. I don't really have to illustrate this for you, do I? We all know our tendency is to lie if it's going to make us look better in the eyes of others. Our natural tendency is to be selfish, to think about me. What can I get out of this? What's in this that will benefit me? I was at the store the other day, and they were playing a song by some country singer, and he's describing how, I think his name, Toby Keith, is that his name? He's describing this, this, his, his girlfriend or his wife, I don't know who it is, some gal, you know, we talk about you all the time, but once in a while, I want to talk about me. Me, myself, you'll be mine, number one. Let's talk about me for a while. Some of you heard that song, right? That's not a Christian attitude. But it's a sinner's attitude, and that's what we all have. Let's talk about me for a while. Let me tell you all the good things about me. Let me brag about me. Let's make decisions that will make me happy. That's sin. Because the Bible says we're not supposed to live the way that makes me happy. You're supposed to live the way that makes God happy. We know this is our natural desire, our natural pursuits. And you know, if I get sick of my wife, I'll find a better one. And if you have something I want, if I can take it without getting caught, 
I'll do that. That's the way we naturally think. And we need a change of heart. We need something to change so that now, instead of that, instead of thinking, it's all about me, I'm, I, I do want to talk about you. You, 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 you. That's what he kept saying in the song over there. You, 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 me, 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 me. And, and instead of finding a, a better wife, I realized I have the world's greatest wife right here. And instead of taking your stuff, I realized I have everything I need. I'm glad God has blessed you with what you have, and I have what I have. And I'm content with that. And instead of starting a fight, I want to make peace. We need a transition in our heart so that now our desire is to do what pleases God. And in the gospel message, in the good news of what it means to be a Christian, God says, I will do that for you. If you become mine, if you believe what my son has done, I will transform you, and now you will want to be a better person. You will want to please me. It's what we all need. I'm going to do Dan's job for him here. I'm going to set up the song we're going to sing after Bill comes and prays. We're going to sing Joy to the World. And there's a line in that song that I love. It's my favorite Christmas song. As far as the curse is found. Do you remember that line? What Jesus has done extends as far as the curse is found. What that means is this. When we turned against God and started sinning against Him and rebelled against His authority and His lordship, God being just, He punished the world. The universe, the, 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 the planet is under His judgment. We are under His judgment. Our heart is under His judgment. When we come to faith in Christ, everything starts being transformed and being undone. And it's working toward a glorious state where the entire universe is beautiful. Now, God gives us little glimpses of that beauty now. I mean, the sun on the mountain range, or in the snow, rather, on the mountain range this morning, beautiful. And we see gorgeous sunsets, and, and we see majestical things in creation. We think, wow, that's gorgeous. But we haven't seen anything yet. When the curse is fully lifted, we're going to be utterly amazed at God's glory and goodness. And our own hearts someday are going to be completely free of all of the curse, all of the judgment, and we're going to be perfect people. You, if you're a Christian, you're going to be absolutely perfect. Wives, the guy sitting next to you someday, he's going to be perfect. And it's not going to be because of your work, but because of God's work. As far as God has cursed the universe, that curse is going to be transformed and lifted and all will be glorious and wonderful. That will be joy to the world like never before. So as we stand and sing that, sing it loud, sing it with, with heart and faith that it's real. Someday, every slightest trace of the effects of sin will be gone. And you and I will never, ever, ever be disappointed again. Can you fathom that? An existence with no disappointment? That's what heaven is going to be like. That's the joy Jesus came to bring to mankind. 
But individually, it starts with acknowledging, I'm a sinner and so are you. I stand guilty of God, uh, uh, guilty against his law, and I deserve his judgment. And Jesus Christ died for my sins. He took that punishment, and I can be forgiven because of him. That's why we sing. That's why we're here. That's why Christmas is worthy of celebrating. If you are here today and you are not a believer, you can be today. You can put your trust in Christ and receive forgiveness. And I promise you, you will experience a joy this Christmas that you've never felt before. Because you will know in your heart that the work of the Spirit has been done. And that God is no longer angry with you. But the curse has already begun to be lifted. And your life would change. And you would no longer be a hypocrite. You'll be pleasing to God for the first time in your life. That's my prayer for you, and I'm going to ask Brother Bill to come and pray that as well.